Thank you so much. I uh, I am so excited uh, to be here. I'll uh, tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, my sister Amy is here uh, with me tonight. And her and I are, I'm the oldest of four kids, and her and I were born in Ohio in uh, dairy country of uh, the farmland of the U.S. We went down to Georgia in the south for uh, mom and dad to go to school. We were raised outside of Chicago in the Midwest. I went, to, I went to Canada, actually, for high school. We moved to Saskatchewan, Canada. I became a dual citizen with Canada. And uh, you may hear a little bit of an accent once in a while. Uh, tonight, it's a, probably a word I learned uh, when I was there. It sticks with me. And I married a girl from Montana in the Rocky Mountains. And then we went to school in Northern California and then became pastors back on the East Coast in upstate New York. And then it was time to go to seminary. I went over to Portland, Oregon, back on the West Coast. And now I'm down in Los Angeles. So I love uh, moving and following uh, where uh, God is leading. I'm excited uh, to be here tonight. Uh, Australia is my 22nd country. And so I am really enjoying being here. And I just need to tell you ahead of time that uh, I'm terrible at traveling. I make the worst cultural mistakes. I do really embarrassing things. And so you'll just, over the next two hours together, I hope you'll bear with me as, um, no, okay. Uh, I, uh, I'm actually a little nervous. I uh, told my wife that I, we've been married 22 years and um, you never know what kind of reaction that's gonna get. A lot of times people are like, are you okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or some people are like, how old would you have been when you got married? Eight? Because I have the pudgy face. But I'm actually nervous. I told my wife I was going to eat healthy on this trip, but I, I didn't know, no one told me about Brumbies. And um, I'm, not, I'm not great at math. So when I walked in the first day, I'm like, I'm only here 10 days. So if I'm going to try every one of these pies and rolls, by my estimation, I'm going to have to eat about four a day. And uh, I'm doing well so far. And some of you are like, I can see that. I, that guy looks like he can eat four pies. Actually, when my dad came home from preaching at the two services this morning, he walked in and he goes, uh, you got three pies? I'm like, there are three here. And he said, I, didn't, I bought more than three. There were three left by the time he got home. And I said, uh, there are three now, and we could split these up and each try different ones. So I feel pretty good about my plan. I, I have an aisle seat on the way home, and I think, I think it's legal. I can just do sit-ups the entire flight, and hopefully my wife won't ask what the heck Brumby's was, as if she sees. The <laughs> Man, I'm, I am loving Brumby's. Today I want to talk to you about the shape of faith. And uh, I am a visual person, and I love uh, the, the idea that shapes matter, that the shape of something can really be uh, central and really influential. 
uh, to how something goes. If you've ever seen an organizational chart, a lot of people roll their eyes at organizational charts. I'm fascinated with them. You can tell so much about a group of people or an institution, a business, a church, by looking at the organizational chart. And a lot of organizational charts are, are top down. The charts are top down. They're like a pyramid or whatever. And uh, But I, re I really, if you ever see one that's flattened or like in a circle, you can tell somebody has really thought about how we are related and relating uh, to each other. You can tell a lot about things by the shape. And I was actually uh, fascinated when I learned a couple years ago that uh, the crew who discovered in the 50s, they discovered the, this famous double helix uh, for DNA that the, this crew was actually working off a model by a colleague that had been developed earlier, and that they actually had uh, everything they needed to know about DNA except the shape. They had all the, uh, uh, the proteins figured out, they had everything, but what, and they had the sequences, and they knew exactly, but they didn't have the right shape. And ever since I heard that story, there are so many times I figure out that people often have the right information, but it's in the wrong shape. There's something not just about the sequence, but about the configuration that is really important. You can have the right information, and if it's in the wrong shape, you can still be missing the, the thing that makes it come alive that allows you to really do what you want to do with it, and it can be really disappointing uh, and frustrating uh, to do that. So when we talk about uh, faith, I, we read this passage, uh, Jesus, uh, in, in John chapter 1, that was read for us. Jesus uh, has these encounters, right? And they're really interesting encounters, and we can talk about things like a prophet's never accepted in her own hometown. We can talk about how uh, Jesus said, if you're impressed because I saw you under a fig tree, like, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know? But the thing that intrigues me about this passage is that weird last part when he says, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So any guesses what he's alluding to there? Anybody know what that's about? What's that? Well, yeah, but he's, he's referencing something. They're, they're supposed to be able to know, but it's such a weird illusion, right? It's like, it's like a dog whistle or like an inside baseball kind of thing. That's a saying we have. Um, I don't know what the equivalent is, sorry. And, uh, <laughs> boy, I went down that road and immediately, like, so um, that did not go well. So... Uh, so he makes this weird illusion. He says, you'll see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what he's referencing is a story out of the Hebrew Testament, Genesis chapter 22, called Jacob's Ladder. So if you're familiar with Jacob's Ladder, the angels of God, in this vision that Jacob has, the angels of God are, are, are ascending and descending on this ladder. So by saying that this, Jesus is saying you'll see them ascending on the Son of Man, he's making a claim that I am bridging heaven and earth that the angels of God, well, you'll see ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming authority, fulfilling expectations from the Hebrew scriptures that he is the bridge of heaven and earth. And this is an amazing thing because in this, Jesus actually changes the shape of religion because all the religions up to that point had a definite shape to them. There was a couple varieties, but in general, they all worked kind of a certain way. And when Jesus comes, 
He literally bridges the human and the divine so that humanity now relates to the divine differently. Jesus changes that relationship by bridging the gap that had formed. And so there's this other passage I want to read you in Ephesians chapter 2. So I want you to listen uh, to this. It's a little bit of a twist because the women and men who followed Jesus are the ones who eventually taught us how to interpret the event of Christ. They're the ones who told us the significance of what had happened in Christ. So listen to this. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and his regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two and thus make peace. So do you know the, the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Okay? So this gets really interesting. So he, makes, he becomes our peace. He makes a peace between us and God. God is no longer angry with us. You've heard of that famous uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? But this passage says, no, 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 there's been a peace made in Christ. God is not angry at you. God actually really likes you. You're good with God. Okay? So, uh, verse 16. And in this one body to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It is finished, right? That's the sentence. It is finished. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Here's the twist with Jesus. Once he bridged that gap between the human and the divine, once he bridged heaven and earth, he twisted it on its side and changed the shape of religion. And that ladder that bridged heaven and earth was turned on its side, and it became a bridge for those who are both near to God and far from God. Jesus changes the shape of how we get to relate to each other and to God. And it's an amazingly powerful thing to realize because so much of our religion has missed this update and continues to operate with the old operating system. Trying to please God by doing better, having more faith, praying harder, believing deeper, whatever it is. But it's all so motivated right from this side of the gap without recognizing, no, 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 the bridge has been, the, the gap has been bridged. And then to take it even one more step, that bridge, that, that ladder becomes the bridge, and Jesus preaches peace, shalom, to those who are both near to God and those who are far away. It's why in the nativity story, have you ever noticed how many different kinds of people end up in that Christmas story? And, and you can see it both in the shepherds and then later in the magi when they show up, because you have those of low standing and those of high education, those with no resources, and those of great wealth, not educated, high educated, you have the bridging of everybody ends up at that little manger in that story. And it's so important that our story starts that way. 
Because what's going to end up happening by the end of that story is that not only are heaven and earth with the angels, remember the angels are there, they're singing, the shepherds are there. You have heaven and earth together, now bridged, and peace is being proclaimed. Shalom, the restoration of all things to those who are both near and far away. It's an amazingly powerful thing when you realize that truth itself is bent. The gospel bends things. Truth is bent. So I want to be clear about when I say the gospel, this is what I'm, specifically how I'm defining it. The gospel is the good news that God loves the whole world and has provided for them in Christ. Okay? So I'm going to say that again because that's not everyone's definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God, that God loves the whole world and has provided for them in Christ. When Jesus changed the shape of religion, he bent the previous structures, the rafters and the beams, and bent them so that it was no longer, because the top down had already been taken care of, right? Christ came to earth. And then Jesus in full humanity was raised up. And in that bridge, Jesus turns it on its side and proclaims peace to those far and those near. It's an amazing truth that has huge implications for us. So when I define the gospel that way, it's important to realize that if this is true, okay, let's just let's wipe the slate clean for a second, just pretend that we're starting now, okay? If it's true that God, we have it on good authority that God loves the whole world, can we agree on that? Okay, John 3.16, God loves the whole world. Okay. So if God loves the whole world and has provided for them in Christ, the once sacrificed for all, then think about what we could do by proclaiming the good news. By letting people in on the secret, religion doesn't work the way it used to. And I don't know which brand you were sold, and you may have bought one that doesn't work this way, but the gospel is peace for those who are near and those who are far. The gospel is the heaviest thing in the universe. So when we talk about shapes, living rooms used to be squares, right? And they, everyone faced each other, and it was a place of conversation. And then there was the invention of the television. And once you put a television in a room, and any of you with kids or teens will know this, once there's a television in the room, that television becomes the heaviest thing in the room. Everyone just kind of drifts that way. There's a weight to having that technology in the room. And so our shape of our living rooms has changed. They went from being squares to horseshoes. And everything reoriented towards the television. Right? So it's important to understand when things have weight to them. In fact, the Hebrew word that we use usually gets translates glory is actually a word of weight. So the Shekinah, is a, it means heaviness. It's a weight because God's presence is heavy. It's why people in the, in the Hebrew Testament often fall down when God's presence is there. Right? It's, it's too much. And so if the weight of God's presence is the heaviest thing around, the analogy, the image that I like to use is of a trampoline. So you have the surface of the trampoline and all the springs hold the tension around. And let's pretend that there's like, you know, kids kind of throw their trampoline, their toys up on the trampoline so that when they jump, it's like doing this wild thing with all the toys jumping around. 
And so you have all these toys kind of spread out on the surface of a trampoline. But then imagine that you took a bowling ball and put it right on the trampoline. And you can start to imagine that the weight of that bowling ball actually changes the fabric of the surface of the trampoline and that the toys all start to slide towards the bowling ball because it's now the heaviest thing in the arena. This is how I think about the gospel. The gospel is the heaviest thing in the universe. And where it is, the good news that God loves everyone and has provided for them in Christ, where that is happening, it is a weight to it. And it reorients everything around it. I'll give you three examples. The gospel changes the shape of people's lives. Have you ever seen somebody who... Uh, had their life kind of all arranged the way they want with the toys laid out on the trampoline and they had life kind of going that way and then they came to the gospel. When Christ is present in someone's life, it changes the shape of that person's life because the weight of God's presence reorients everything else. And all the little toys of life and the the trinkets and the artifacts all start sloping towards the heaviest thing, and that is the gospel. Have you seen it? When, when the gospel comes into someone's life, their life changes. However they were oriented before, whatever had the pride of place, whatever had that privilege, is now no longer the heaviest thing and everything starts sloping. Because once the gospel's in, it pulls everything towards it. It has its own gravitational pull. It's God's presence in someone's life is so heavy that all the toys and the activities and the priorities get reoriented. The gospel changes the shape of people's lives. The gospel changes the shape of families. My favorite example is of... Uh, this family that I worked with, and dad was a, a non-believer and he was an alcoholic. And his bottles were the heaviest thing in the house. The whole family in dysfunction was oriented towards dad's drinking. Dad's mood, dad's schedule was the heaviest thing in their house. And then his wife came to Jesus. And I have never seen the shape of a family change like that because God's presence in her life became the heaviest thing in that house. And everything started sloping towards mom. Everything changed and it reoriented and she started carrying more weight than dad. And she brought peace where there had been turmoil she brought light where there had been darkness because to those who are both near and far, shalom is being restored. The gospel changes the shape of families. And that woman, she had such a presence and a deep trust in God that slowly, this is where it gets dangerous, everyone else in her family came to have peace with God where they had had anger about the way they were raised and the anger about the way life had been going, they came to a place of having peace with God. 
But now you've got a problem because now you've got two bowling balls. Now you've got three bowling balls. Now you've got more bowling balls than bottles. And the family was transformed. And there came a point where dad had no choice. The weight of God's presence in his family was so heavy, he got pulled into its gravitational pull. And peace, shalom, came to that house. It was awesome. The gospel changes the shape of communities. Think about it this way. If you, when you build this, this uh, outreach, the center, if what I'm saying is true, and the gospel is in that place, the good news that God loves everyone and has provided for them in Christ is in that place, it will become the heaviest thing in that community and on Google Maps, you'll actually be able to track the traffic will change. Because everything will start sloping. People will start rolling in. It'll be the heaviest thing in that geographic area, and you'll be able to see it. The gospel changes the shape of whole communities. But unfortunately, we have to deal with the elephant in the room. Because some of you are looking at me, and if you're anything like me, you have an analytical mind, you're thinking, oh, that sounds, I get it. I mean, I, theoretically, that sounds good. But I've got to be honest, that has not been my experience with church. So let's talk about why that may not have been the case. Is it possible, if this hasn't been your experience, this transformation of life, seeing families transformed, whole communities reoriented. If that has not been your experience, and you, you may be able to add a fourth here, but here are the three reasons I have found may be why that's the case. Number one, you may have the right information and the wrong shape. Because sometimes we're really good at the information. We have statements of faith. We have people do confessions of faith. We check the boxes. We have, we're all reading the right version of the Bible, the NIV. <laughs> and we have the right info and the wrong shape, which is why the organizational structures can be so important. When things are top down, right, sometimes all the goodness that's happening in one place doesn't get all the way down right? Or there's an authority problem where what's happening uh, on the surface never makes its way up to the tower. And so there's a disconnect. There can be all sorts of things. If we have the right information and not the right shape, it can really be pragmatic, which is why when people prayerfully uh, consider how they're organized as a community or congregation, a family, that either flattening it or, or making it a circle can sometimes be a revolutionary thing because the content's all there. They already know the right stuff. They're just not related in how they are shaped together. So that's the first thing I found. The second thing that can really gum this up is if you have a different definition of the gospel. Because as I have traveled, one of the things I have found is that sometimes the gospel can be boiled down to believe, behave, belong. And usually in that order. Believe the right things, behave the right way, 
then you can be one of us. Uh-oh. Because that, if the scriptures we've read tonight indicate anything, it's that that's not the way religion works anymore. If, if you're, even if you're going to stick with that triad, the first thing you do is belong. You've been adopted into the family of God. You're at peace. God has made peace with humanity in Christ. You belong. We're in this together. You are adored by God. God loved the whole world. You are accepted by God in Christ. You are approved, filled with God's spirit for ministry. And you are adopted. We are God's family. So you belong. And then we're hoping that you come to either believe the right things and maybe change the way you behave. But that's not what determines whether you belong or not. And any time somebody's behavior or belief determines whether they can belong, I'm not sure that's this version of the gospel we're working off of. Dean asked me to say that because as an outsider, I can get away with stuff like that. <laughs> that's not true. I, was, I said that anyway. Last one is that sometimes, even if you have the right content, you have the right information, and, and mostly the right shape, sometimes it's as simple as a direction, that things travel in the wrong direction. And so one of the things that we have done in the past is uh, we just learned to name what directions things go and then to revisit it like that. So when, I, when we started a new church in upstate New York, one of the things we learned to do is that we would just name, like we have the core, and then around them we have the committed, then around them we have the community or the congregation, and lastly we have the community. And so our direction of ministry was that as the pastoral staff, we cared for our core. We, had, we were a cell church, so we had cell leaders, uh, small group leaders. And so we cared for them, trusting that they would care for the committed who showed up at midweek groups, and that they would then care for the congregation who only came on the weekend, and that the congregation would then care for the community that surrounded us. That was our direction of ministry, right? And so when it comes to something like sermon prep, I, as the pastoral staff, you know, in the group that was around me, we would discern and we'd come up with a sermon series and we'd work it through, right? That was the direction. And it worked great for about eight years. It was fantastic. And then something changed. It just, it lost its zip. It didn't, it didn't have the pop that it had. And so in prayer, I came up with this idea to change the direction so we just said that we wanted the congregation to talk with their friends in the community and say, what kind of thing would you be interested in a church talking about? Then they reported that to the small group leaders who brought that back to the... So we ended up doing sermons, not based on what God was giving me, right, during the week in my time, but instead of it being from that direction out, we started getting it from the outside in, and the life came back. And the spirit was in that. So it turned out we had the right content. We had a pretty good shape. We just had the wrong direction. And so it happens with things like, uh, you probably don't have this here, but sometimes pe people will get mad at each other at church. Like, things don't always go well. 
during the week. And um, so one of the things you can look at with direction is what direction do problems go, okay? So in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you have a problem with somebody, they've sinned against you, you go to that person first. Then if that doesn't work, you take it to two or three, but keep the circle small. Take it to two or three. And then if that doesn't work, you go to the congregation. So one of the things we used to joke about is, when I was the senior pastor, I would say, if your problem makes it to me, you're about to have a much bigger problem. <laughs> but if you don't have a direction like that, what often happens is somebody gets offended. Something, you, you look, I'll get offended by something you did. You look like that. God just gave that to me right there. Um, no, I didn't. I just, I just like him. Uh, and let's say, let's say that I have a beef with you, but if I don't go to you first, and instead I go to the, the pastor or the group leader, right, I've broken the direction, and then it has to come back around. And I actually, sometimes you'll find out that I have a problem with you because the pastor is now involved, and that's the first time you're hearing about it. That's not going to work, right? That the, Something has broken in the shape of community. Shalom has been broken, and so these are the three things I have found for if this has not been your experience, this, this might be the three reasons why. If, if you have a fourth reason afterwards you want to suggest to me, I'm more than open to that. I can add to it uh, the next time I do this. But I just wanted to close with this. If what I'm saying is right, and it may not be, I'm more than open to that, okay? But if I'm right, then the gospel is that God loves everyone you meet in a week and is up to something on their behalf. So what if when you leave this place, you just know that like whether it's a meal with a lot of garlic in it or uh, you're, if you're a smoker or if you think about anointing oil, whatever your best image is, you rub off on people. Everywhere you go, you stink. <laughs> right? Like the scripture says you have, you have the fragrance of Christ, which to those who are living smells great, and to others it smells like death. Right? But you're stinky. So if you know that you carry this fragrance of the gospel with you everywhere you go, think about the difference it would make if you truly believed that because God's presence was with you, that you might be the heaviest thing in any room you walk into. What if you carry the most weight in your family and haven't even realized it? What if when you put all these bowling balls together and you drop them into a new community, if you begin rerouting traffic? God loves the whole world and has provided for all of us in Christ. This is good news. Let's take a moment and just be quiet and see what God may lay on our heart.
Lord, if there's anyone we need to forgive so that we can move into peace and make shalom a reality, help us to forgive. If there is anyone we have offended that we need to build a bridge to so that the shape of the relationship can be restored, give us strength. If there's anyone it would be good for us to call this week, somebody who would love to hear from us, we give you permission to wake us up in the middle of the night, to arrange mysterious circumstances, to prompt us, even when it's inconvenient, so that in all things you might be glorified. Those who are near and those who are far, and that peace can be restored. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your work in Christ. Now, Holy Spirit, come and make us one. Give us the wisdom we need for the road ahead, the faith to overcome the obstacles that will be in our path, and the boldness to bear the weight we carry. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you.